From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Thank you for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, earlier today, the highest court in this country, the Supreme Court of Canada, ruled against federal legislation on the environmental effects of major developments. At that high court, five of the seven judges found it, most of it unconstitutional, saying its language could be used to regulate activities that fall within provincial jurisdiction. The ruling is about 200 pages, just slightly more than 200 pages, but in that ruling, Chief Justice Richard Wagner wrote, writing for the majority of the judges, said the law as written could regulate activities that are provincial business instead of restricting Ottawa to environmental effects that are within its power to oversee. He goes on to say, even if this court were to accept Canada's submission that the defined effects with federal jurisdiction are within federal jurisdiction, these effects do not drive the scheme's decision-making powers. Well, many people are applauding this ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada. One of those is Chris Gardner, president of the Independent Contractors and Business Association. And Chris is on the line with us now. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Thanks, Jill. It's great to be on the show. Break down for us, if you can, why your organization, I believe the word that you used earlier, was thrilled with this ruling. Well, if you think about uh, major infrastructure projects that are being proposed in British Columbia, um, what what the federal law meant was that not only would a project proponent have to go through an environmental assessment and review uh, undertaken by the provincial government, but would also have to go through a second one undertaken by the federal government. And uh, so, as you pointed out, the court said that was an overreach into an area of provincial responsibility. Um, So this was a great decision. Uh, when you consider that Canada and British Columbia have a very poor reputation of getting to decisions on major projects in a timely manner. The World Bank ranks Canada number 64 in the world in the length of time it takes to approve a major construction project. And that's just not good enough. We can do better. We need to do better. Um, So this decision was great. I know that you were in support of the province of Alberta. Uh, The province of Alberta was an intervener in this case. And it's often referred to, or the the Impact Assessment Act was often referred to as the the No Pipelines Act. And uh, the federal government, I think, is saying now that that they don't think the changes that they need to make are are all that big, but that they will will make these changes. But but what are your thoughts on, on what this means for this act moving forward? Well, the federal government is going to have to make changes now. Uh, they have two choices. They can scrap it or they can, uh, they can amend it. It sounds like their initial thinking is that they would make changes. And, um, and they, they need to make those changes. The Supreme Court was very clear in its judgment. But if you think about some of the projects that uh, impact us every single day, we've got um, you know, challenges with energy and, and globally in terms of climate change and, and the move away from fossil fuels and certainly a move away from coal. We have an abundance of LNG, and it just it takes us so long to approve those projects that we're missing opportunities. And other countries are filling that gap. Countries like the United States, like Australia, are now major, major exporters of LNG. We could be in that same position, but we're not because we simply take too long to review and approve these projects. So investors go to other places to invest their dollars, and it's hurting all of us. 
the the judge that wrote the ruling uh, for for the other judges that voted uh, this way uh, said that uh, that the provinces still need to work within the federal rules. How do you see that playing out? Well, you know, one of the things, this is a good decision, but as Canadians and British funds, we have a lot, a lot of work to do. This is just one small piece of the puzzle. Um, and the challenge is that we have competing jurisdictions, the provinces, the Ottawa, Victoria, and they'll often have different agendas. And if they're not working together uh, in lockstep in a way that says to an investor, we're not going to guarantee the outcome, but here's the process. Here's the steps you need to follow, and we will make a decision in two years or three years, whatever the timeline is. Instead, what you have is a complex web of very, very challenging regulations where there's no defined end time. And so what happened with the Trans Mountain Pipeline project? The private sector owner decided enough is enough. We can't get the project approved. And the federal government had to buy the project to complete the construction. That's how bad it was. We can't let that happen in Canada. And we're hearing as well from other premiers, uh, Doug Ford, I think, put out a statement saying that he thinks this will effectively remove Ottawa from project assessment in, in different provinces. Uh, in Saskatchewan, Scott Moe uh, tweeted out, I believe he shared this on social media, saying that this should make the federal government rethink all of the areas or many of the areas where they are overstepping. And, and he talked about things like electric generation, oil and gas production. So is that the key here, or is that the, the, hope, the, the takeaway that hopefully this will make the federal government rethink this and perhaps step back? Yes, and it's vitally important that, that, we, that they rethink the approach they've been taking. Because ultimately, we need, the, we need Ottawa and Victoria, in our case, to work together to advance these projects. It's not, it doesn't do anyone any good to have governments finger-pointing and blaming each other. We need everyone to get on the same page. So to the extent that this decision will help uh, move Ottawa uh, from being from basically overlaying a whole bunch of complication and cost and making it simpler and easier to get a project assessed, um, that's going to be very helpful uh, because so much of our economic prosperity depends on whether are we going to expand the port of Vancouver, we can expand Vancouver Airport, we're going to build a new pipeline, a new bridge, uh, we're going to build a new mine. It takes 10 to 15 years to get a, a mine approved in British Columbia. So we've got to do a better job. So hopefully this will be a catalyst to remove some of that red tape, some of those obstacles. Uh, do you have any concerns with the response, though, from the federal environment minister with Stephen Guibault saying that uh, this doesn't strike down the law, they won't change how they do federal assessments, and that he feels that the government has been cautious in applying this law anyway, even before the court ruling? Well, the, the, the funny thing is in Ottawa, it seems that one minister doesn't know what another minister is doing uh, because the Minister of Finance in her budget in March of this year said, recognize we have a problem with project approvals in Canada. And she, her solution was to allocate $25 million to quote-unquote study the problem. So there is a recognition. They know full well that there are challenges because investors are, are making decisions and they're, they're investing in other countries. And, uh, and that's, why, that's why outbound investment has exceeded inbound investment in Canada every single year since 2014. Uh, so we've got to change the narrative. Uh, we've got to be a place where you can get to yes in a timely manner and, and open the doors and welcome investors so we can build our economy.
And will it make a big difference then in that by striking down this law, it means that that there won't be an automatic triggering of, of a federal impact review, given given the, the, the list of activities that were included in this law? Does it at least then take that away? Then even if the minister doesn't think much has changed, that effectively has been struck down. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So th- there is there's going to be a role for the federal government to play in environmental assessments. But this sort of secondary assessment of the entire project is, is um, uh, the, the Supreme Court ruled it's unconstitutional. Uh, so that's now firmly a responsibility of the province. The province, any province, can move ahead with that assessment. Um, but there's going to be elements where they're going to have to work with the federal government. Um, and, and just think of uh, in British Columbia, there's a very exciting new uh, LNG plant that's been proposed, Cedar LNG, the first one owned and proposed by an Indigenous community, uh, the Hyzal Nation in, in Kitimat. That's an exciting project. We need to work to get that project approved. So we need everyone at the table, Ottawa and Victoria. Chris, it is great to talk to you uh, about this. Thank you so much. We'll leave it there, but thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thank you very much. Well, it is something I think that a lot of people would avoid if they could. Sometimes you can't, though, whether you have to have a blood test or you're in the hospital and have to get some kind of blood draw. And it can be uncomfortable. People can have a needle phobia. Some new research, though, shows that potentially in the intensive care units, at least, medical officials could be collecting less blood. They could also be using different needles. Well, how much of a difference would that make? Deborah Siegel is joining me now lead author of this report, also a hematologist at the Ottawa Hospital. Deborah, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I found this really interesting research because it is something that I think a lot of people listening probably have gone through. It, it isn't something that is that anybody, I think, looks forward to. But what specifically were you looking at here? Yes, thanks so much. Um, 100% people resonate um, with this study because... We know that when people are hospitalized, they need blood tests to be done, particularly people in intensive care unit who have critical illness. They need to be monitored closely to response to treatment. We wanted to show that we could reduce transfusions in intensive care unit patients simply by switching to tubes that collect less blood for this lab testing. So you may know that because these um, folks are critically ill and have multiple blood tests drawn per day, this can actually add up to quite a bit of blood loss, which can then you know, lead to more trans- use of transfusions in these patients. Transfusions of blood are um, an important, scarce resource. We'd rely on people who donate them in the community, and also they can be costly and have some uh, co- complications like health consequences. So we really want to make sure that those supplies are available for people who need them when they need them. Um, and so we wanted to test this as a way to reduce the amount of transfusions that we give to those folks. And how did how much did, did you find out or, or did you find out that blood that was being collected in, in the standard way that, that is being done now, how much of that, how much blood is needed? And, and uh, for lack of a, b- a better word, I guess, how much is wasted? Yes. So that's a really important part of it. So we, we actually looked at 25 intensive care units um, across Canada. So this involved to over 27,000 patients who were the, in the intensive care unit. And what we know is that when they draw blood into the tube, the blood draws actually automatically because the, the tubes have a vacuum inside that actually ends up sucking the blood out of the vein um, or out of the device that sits in the vein. And actually most of that blood, 90% of that blood is actually discarded. Only a small amount of the blood is actually used for the tests to be conducted. 
And so we felt this year is this is an opportunity for us to reduce waste and perhaps improve uh, the use of transfusions in these folks um, be, by just simply switching out those tubes that automatically collect less blood. Uh, and so why do you think or do we know why that has been the standard? 90% seems like a, a pretty big amount of, of blood that's being discarded. So why was that the standard in the first place? Well, I think, you know, people have been interested in reducing the volumes of blood that are taken for lab tests over many years um, and have been calling for it. Um, I think it's just the technology has improved. So now we have analyzers that just need a lot less blood and perhaps we haven't kept pace. Um, It's really important to make sure that we have enough blood to do the lab tests that are required, right? Because again, we're doing those tests to monitor patients who are critically ill and and have organ dysfunction and other things. So um, one of the legitimate concerns about about, uh, switching or reducing the volumes of blood was to make sure that we would have enough to do the tests that were required. And actually in our study, we showed that um, there was no difference in in the number of tests that were insufficient for testing. And actually the proportion of tests that didn't have enough blood in them or the proportion of tubes that didn't have enough blood in them was actually very small. And and I guess there's not a way, is there, using the, the tubes that you um, you described and people that have had those blood draws will, will, will know what you're talking about. It, because of the way it works with the vacuum, is it that you can't just blo- uh, draw some blood? It has to be at that certain amount? Yeah, you know, excellent question. I think that um, the, the way that the tubes work, some of the tubes actually have additives in them. So um, some other chemicals in there to prevent the blood from clotting so that the test can be done properly. And so it's important when, when they add in the blood, the combination of the blood and the additive in the tube, actually there's a, an, a concentration. So we can't simply reduce the amount of blood in the tube because the concentration wouldn't be the correct one uh, in order to do the lab test properly. So, you know, there are guidelines and guidance around blood draws and so and manufacturer recommendations are to fill the tube you know the tubes have the vacuum um, in them and that that it automatically fills to the pre-specified volume so um, that's the volume that's required to make the right concentration Um, if you reduce the tubes they have you know correspondingly the uh, less uh, of that additive in there to make the right concentration at the end for the blood test to be done and do the tubes, do, using the, the different ones or the, the ones that take the smaller amount, is there any change mm-hmm. with the, the kind of needle that is used? No. So no. one of the cool things about this study is that we actually embedded these tubes right into clinical practice. So we, we, it's called a, like in a pragmatic trial. So we really said, okay, these tubes are available. They're sometimes actually used for, for children. Um, and they're, you, know, you can purchase them. So that's what the hospitals did. They purchased these tubes from the manufacturers. The um, uh, hospital staff went and swapped out the tubes in the storage areas, put a new barcode, and that's how each of the sites switched to using the, the smaller tubes, smaller volume tubes. Um, so no, there, there wasn't a, a different way that blood is collected. It's the same type of tube. They look the same. They have the same physical size. Um, they go and, uh, on equipment the same way, and they're used the same way. They just have less volume, so they automatically fill to a lower volume of blood. And you mentioned transfusions as well, and I will fully admit I've never actually thought of transfusions connected to somebody who's had so many blood tests and had blood draws. I, I think we tend to think of them more as blood loss or, or, or for other kind of more catastrophic or more more dire uh, concept or situations. But mm-hmm. were you able then then to to see the the impact on people that were getting the smaller blood draws that that you weren't seeing as many transfusions? 
Yeah, so that was the, the kind of primary outcome of the study was to look at the a number of transfusions that were given during the stay in the intensive care unit. So people who are critically ill actually often have low blood levels. We call that anemia. And so there's lots of reasons for people in the intensive care unit to have that because their bone marrows aren't working properly. Perhaps they have bleeding or other or drugs that are you know suppressing the bone marrow from making new blood cells. Um, and and taking blood for lab tests, particularly a lot of blood like these folks have, actually can contribute to this anemia or low blood. Um, for example, if, if the average amount of blood taken during you know, eight days in the ICU is like donating a unit of blood, but unlike healthy donors who go and, and give blood, for example, to Canadian Blood Services, these folks actually aren't able to produce blood in the same way because their bone marrows aren't working as well. Right. Um, so so uh, we did show that we, we may be able to reduce transfusion by 10 units of blood per 100 patients. Um, and so, you know, that's an important number because if we think maybe for individual patients, that's actually maybe small. But you think of it as the hospital or health system or actually the country with Canadian Blood Services, for example, that's actually a large number. Um, and maybe I'll give you a sense of, of how many, just how many transfusions were given. We know that intensive care unit patients are highly, they get a lot of transfusions. Up, you know, some of the most highly transfused patients in the hospital, um, in our study, they received over 36,000 units of blood during our, our study, which was less than two years at 25 ICUs. And so we could have saved 1,500 units of blood just from switching these tubes uh, mm-hmm. to the smaller volume tubes. Huh. And are, are there also issues with, obviously, if you're getting a transfusion, it's because you need that and, and that decision has been made. But are there potential risks or potential side effects as well? Yeah, absolutely. So they, you know, transfusions are an important treatment. And often the people we think of needing transfusions are, again, as you mentioned, people who are bleeding, people who are undergoing cancer treatment or surgery, people who are in uh, traumatic accidents, you know, often need blood products. So it's really important to make sure that we safeguard these products so that they're there when people are needing them. Um, There are complications of giving transfusions that are important. That's why we only use them for the the right patients at the right time. Um, People can have, uh, um, you know, fevers, people can have infections from getting transfusions and Sometimes you can have problems breathing um, just from, from having the volume or some immune reactions in the blood. So, again, it is important that we make sure that we are using them appropriately for the right folks um, who need them and that they're there when they need them. So efforts to reduce the, the amount of transfusions that we give are welcome. Um, and, uh, and, and so this is hopefully now going to be one of another thing in our toolkit to be able to do that. So it doesn't sound like there was any downside to to this, to trying these these different uh, blood draw tubes, taking a smaller amount. Was there any negative part? Well, we looked at, again, the the most important concern, I think, is a legitimate concern about there not being enough blood to do the tests that were required. And in our analysis, we looked at, you know, the, the amount of specimens that were reported back from the lab. They arrive in the lab and then the lab says, no, you know, there's not enough blood for us to do this analysis. So, again, we didn't see a difference um, in, in that uh, aspect of testing. There were other aspects of testing that we didn't look at, of course. Um, and then, of course, it's always important to remember we went into this because this intervention, the small volume tubes were were, were implemented right in the clinical practice. You know, we had an opportunity to um, work with the nurses and the lab technicians right on the ground at each of the sites and to do very um, limited, focused educational um, intervention, ed- educational methods like posters and a short presentation just to, to um, demonstrate the just key differences. Again, they're the same manufacturer. They, they work the same way. They look the same. They just fell to a lower volume. So we focus on that 
there weren't any logistical problems uh, that way. But of course, you know, we were only looking at patients in the intensive care unit. Um, and it may be that different kinds of, of techniques are required when, you know, rolling this out potentially more, more broadly, just uh, as a sort of caveat. But there would be no reason to think that other patients in the hospital or even in the lab in your community couldn't benefit from having less blood drawn, right? It doesn't, it doesn't add value to their care um, and it could cause harm. Right. So, so do you see this then rolling out first in ICUs or are hopeful that hospitals will start adopting this? Yeah, we are hopeful about that. I think there's been a lot of uh, good enthusiasm from the intensive care community and the transfusion community uh, and, you know, to try to spearhead this going forward and already efforts underway with Canadian Blood Services and others uh, to try to, you know, mobilize around, you know, just being able to take this uh, knowledge that we've, that we've gained and translate it into clinical practice so that we can implement it and, uh, and, and have more broad effect more widely. It is uh, such an interesting study and interesting findings. Uh, Dr. Seagal, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time today. No, I really appreciate your interest. Thanks so much. Well, you uh, likely have seen Uber drivers, Lyft drivers around on many of the streets. Many people use those services. But my next guest drives for both Uber and Lyft and says recently it has become more and more difficult to drop people off. Even if it's five seconds, 10 seconds, he says he and many other drivers are being targeted and given tickets. And yes, they are stopping technically in areas where perhaps you're not supposed to. Ones that are no stopping after three, no parking at sometimes. But the driver that is about to join me says it's become ridiculous because in many cases they don't even see the bylaw officer issuing the tickets. Harjeet has asked that we not use his last name, but Harjeet is with me now. And tell me a little bit more about this. What has it been like when you have been dropping people off and being ticketed? There's no drop off in downtown now. I'll pick up, um, especially after three o'clock on the all May road. And, uh, even if we stop for five seconds, just drop someone off or pick someone up, we get a ticket by the bylaw officer, right? Even they don't hand, it, uh, hand the ticket to us, what they do, even if they're far away or the other side of the road, they take a picture and they mail it to us. So then we find out we get a ticket. So there's no way if we drop off a customer just a little far from their destination, they complain. They complain to Uber, the pickup and the drop off is too far, right? Then we get into trouble. So if there are a few complaints like this, then Uber deactivate our accounts for without any investigation. So that's what's happening in downtown. So we don't know what to do. And uh, we're trying to get hold of, uh, you know, I talked to the city uh, parking manager. Uh, the, uh, and uh, he told us, we went, uh, you know, um, he goes, uh, first he told us, he goes, the taxi got a, taxi's got to move rice than us because they bring in the revenue like half a million a year where you guys don't pay anything to the city. Right, so they can drop off anywhere, anywhere they want to pick up, and also can drive in a bus train. So you guys can do that. And I said, we said that to him that yes, we do pay the city too. We pay 35 cents. That was last year our trip. Now they increase it to 45 cents. Then he goes to me, yeah. Then he goes, there's one drop off by uh, in, in near Chinatown, and uh, one on uh, Broad and Thoradova, uh, right behind the Fairmont Hotel, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm dropping someone off on Hornby, Hornby Street or Georgia. They don't got to walk 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you know, to, you know, uh, to their destination from there. Like, what are we supposed to do, right? And it's the same thing at the Rogers Arena too, and like anywhere in downtown. Then he goes to me and he goes, uh, there's nothing he can do. 
all you can all you guys can do talk to the mayor directly and the council so it's been one year this month since we were trying to get hold of the uh, mayor we've been emailing him all the drivers now emailing him and the council too i think i did two three consoles no reply from them even the receptionist we talked to at the city hall and they're surprised too they said they should be contacting us but none of them are contacting us and we are getting a tickets all the time 50 bucks last year got 150 dollars I dropped someone off in Chinatown for 10 seconds and never saw the bylaw officers. So he mailed me the ticket. I live in the basement. I never got the first ticket. They mailed me the second one. I never got it. Third one, third one I got it was 150. I had to pay. I couldn't dispute it because it was too late. Hmm. Now, last week, I got a $120 ticket. He's dropping someone off at the front of the driveway uh, on 8th Avenue between Granville and Hemlock. And there's a bylaw officer on the other side of the road. He started taking pictures. And I asked him, I go, why are you taking pictures? I didn't drop someone off. Because you're blocking the driveway. I was no car coming, right? Even the customer said that to him. Leave him alone. He's just dropping us off. And I didn't block any traffic. And uh, he gave me a $120, $120, $120 ticket. He would then use too close to the stop sign. I go, if I'm too close to the stop sign, then the driver shouldn't be there. Then I asked him, I go, where am I supposed to drop them off? He told me, go one block down or cross the hemlock and go drop them off on the next one. And I asked him the same question too. I go, how are they going to walk to their destination? 10, 15 minutes? After the snowing or raining, how are people going to get to the destination? Then what's the point of uh, you know, getting an Uber or a taxi? The like, taxi can stop, but we can't. Uh, you mentioned taxis and that the taxis can stop in these places. So is that, is that a different rule that taxis are allowed to pick up and drop off passengers in the places you mentioned where you've been getting tickets? Yeah, they are. Yes. And also the taxi, they have a taxi stop. Even if we go in the taxi stop, we stop there or we drop off someone there, we got tickets. So nothing for us. Even one of the bylaw officers told me yesterday, she goes, taxi, we still let them go. Even at the bus stop, if taxi, the quick pickup and quick drop off, we let them go. But you guys can't do that. She said that to me, directly. She goes, you guys have no right. Did she say why? like other drivers. Why there was the difference that even when taxis are breaking the rules, they're not ticketing them? Uh, I don't ask her that question, no. but she told me the same, other things. She told me that, uh, you know, the Uber and the city had an agreement when Uber came to uh, BC that I guess we, we can't stop anywhere, right? So, but the manager told me last time when I asked him, he said the taxi brings in half a million revenue every year to the city. That's what he told me when I asked him why they have the right and we don't. But that's he told me last year. So then when I told him, I would, we do bring the revenue too. Like I said, 35 cents a trip now. They increased it to 45%. Right. So, but he didn't tell me how much we bring in. I asked him. So that's why he told me the taxi is going to move right, but you guys don't. So if we drive in the bus, then we got a ticket. The taxi is no. So they have a stop. Even like a Canada place, if we go, we are allowed to go downstairs in the parking lot, drop off when the cruise ship comes. But we can go downstairs and pick up a customer. So what they do is, the day that they give us a pickup and drop off is on Cordova and uh, Broadway, right behind, like I told you, behind the hotel, uh, um, uh, Fairmont. But when we get the trip and say pick up, go to your location or drop off at that, at that area, but then they tell us the customer standing at the uh, Canada place. So if we go pick up the customer from Canada place, we get a ticket because we stop, we can't stop. It. So a lot of people, the tourists, they don't even know where the location is, pick up location. On Broad, on Broad and Cordova, because they don't know the area, right? And how are they going to walk with like two, three suitcases? They last like 10 minutes of walk. And so, like you said, you haven't heard back then from the city council or anybody with the city who can try and answer your questions or address this. 
not nobody, not even the mayor. Like we directly email him because the city, the receptionist, they give us the, give us his uh, direct email and the council too. So both managers said that to us because we can do nothing about it. That's mayor and the council. So now where we are planning um, is a protest from the city hall to all the way to Canada place because all the ministers get offices there, right? Mm-hmm. And Ohio lawyer. That's we got no choice. We can't pay. 50 bucks every time, like common, there's so many tickets we are getting. The other thing is they're taking a picture. They didn't let us know that we got a ticket. When you bring this up with Uber or Lyft, are, are the companies doing anything to get answers from the city or to try and fix it? No. Uh, when we call them, when we get a ticket, I call them so many times, other drivers did. But they tell us that you guys are independent drivers. Mm. So you guys are responsible for your tickets. But then I go, what are we supposed to do? We paying the city. Then I got the ticket last uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the um, the customer service told me that just tell the uh, you know the customer you're picking up the passenger, tell them please um, go to safe area, right? Uh, drop off at them at the safe area. But if we do that, to drop them off like they have to walk five minutes, and the customer complained, like I said to the Uber that picked up or drop off was too far. If, we, if they complain two times. Without any investigation, like they deactivate our account. The Uber's not doing anything, no. They don't do nothing. We tell them, but they say you guys are independent. You know, try to pick them up or drop them off at the safe area. That's what we get. That's the answer they give us. Harjeet, I want to go back to something else you said as well, and that's when passengers maybe don't understand why you can't stop in some of these places and then maybe uh, don't give you a good rating or complain. Do you think people understand how much that does impact the driver? Like you said, if you get complaints, it, it, it could potentially mean you stop being a driver. That's the thing. Um, it wrecked your day, you know. Um, so that's, I do full time. That's my, I don't have any second job, right? Right. So I'm going to make much money and I'm going to, that's downtown where you make more money. Too, like, you know? So, but now, because all the tech, uh, people are leaving downtown, like a lot of drivers, they don't want to drive in downtown anymore. Or they're leaving Uber, they're driving taxi or driving, doing other stuff. Yeah, and like you said, it's it's five seconds, it's ten seconds. People know it, it doesn't take that long to get out of an Uber driver. You're no. not even ma- doing a, a transaction. You're just getting out of the vehicle. Not even blocking at traffic, not blocking traffic at all, no way. But now the other thing, like I said, I have the deco up, you know, you get it from the uh, city hall, you pay $27 a year mm-hmm. that I can stop at the commercial loading dock. But now what they're doing, they're putting patios. We will look into it more and see if we can get some of the answers for you. But Harjeet, I really appreciate you joining and you contacting us to tell us about this and to raise these concerns. Thank you for doing this. Thanks, y'all. appreciate it. Thanks for having me on your station. Thanks a lot. We have been talking a lot once again about policing in Surrey. And as you've been hearing on the news as well, the city of Surrey going to the Supreme Court of B.C. asking for a judicial review of the order that came from B.C.'s public safety minister. This was the order in July that the city must continue with the transition to the Surrey Police Service. And earlier today, we heard from Peter German, who is a lawyer who has been hired by the city to help consult and he kind of boiled down what the crux of this petition is. Well, what is very clear uh, is, and in the petition, is that Surrey uh, alleges that the minister did not have the jurisdiction 
regardless of where if that jurisdiction comes from, be it the police act or whatever, uh, had the jurisdiction uh, to make the decision that he did. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Wally Opal, former Attorney General, also former chair of the Surrey Police Transition Task Force. Uh, Wally Opal, great to have you back on the show. Always good to be with you, Jill. Uh, are you surprised at all that the city of Surrey is turning to the courts on this? Uh, I am. Uh, the judicial review is a procedure whereby the Supreme Court has the jurisdiction under certain circumstances, to overrule a decision made by a government. And my experience has been that judicial reviews uh, are not that often successful. They depend upon the facts. Here, uh, in order for Surrey to succeed, they would have to show that the decision made by Mike Farnworth was uh, not without jurisdiction and, of course, he relies on the Police Act, which does give him jurisdiction to do that. He's a solicitor general, and the policing responsibility in the province is his under Section 2 of the Act. There's, there's, Surrey also will have to show that the decision was not lawful, was not reasonable, and was not fair. And here, uh, the solicitor general in the decision that he made in July relied on the fact that the RCMP was 1,500 officers short in the province. And in order to properly fund policing and and, uh, for Surrey, they would have to draw police officers from other places like Kamloops and Kelowna and all of those places. And he wasn't prepared to do that. So the bottom line here was that he he said that based on the facts that he had, that... uh, Surrey uh, could not adequately police itself with the RCMP because of a shortage of officers in the RCMP. So that was was based on. The other thing is that, you know, if you look back at why the decision initially was made in 2018 for Surrey to move away from the RCMP, the governance was a factor. That is, the Surrey, the RCMP is run and governed from Ottawa. By, and Surrey is the largest city in Canada without their own police force. So the councils thought at that time that we should have a police force that's run locally, local police board, local police chief, and that the RCMP, while they've done a good job over the last 70 years, are nevertheless a police force that's governed by a contract whereby the uh, Federal government supplies a police force for you, lock, stock, and barrel. So that was the reason back in 2018. And uh, the Solicitor General then asked Surrey what plans they had, and a transition committee was was uh, uh, established, and uh, they went ahead with it. So then came the election in 2022. A new mayor was elected, and she and city council decided they want to go back to the RCMP and the Solicitor General said, okay, uh, that's your decision, but tell me what plans you have and how are you going to adequately uh, police Surrey with a shortage of officers? And he looked at all of the evidence, and they decided that Surrey does not have the sufficient number of RCMP officers, and to go back to the RCMP would mean a compromising 
of public safety. So that's how we got here. Right. And is that what the the judicial review is going to be looking at? So because one would think and, and that there's other information or there's enough. I mean, Peter German is advising the city that that he would have looked at this and thought, OK, we have a big enough, a strong enough case to take this and petition the court. Well, you know, he may say that, but the fact is they've gone over all of this evidence. The fact is you can't the judge and the Supreme Court can't substitute his or her own decision for this. And they can't decide this for political reasons. What the court has to be satisfied is, was the decision made by Mike Farnworth in error? Was it unreasonable? Was it contrary to the evidence? Was it a correct decision? And uh, so you have to have compelling evidence to the contrary, evidence that indicates that he acted unlawfully, he did not have the evidence before him, and that when he decided that Surrey could not properly police itself by the RCMP, that that he was an error. But you may recall that when he made the decision in July, he relied on evidence. He relied on the facts. And I don't know if the facts have changed since that time. Right. And what about the timeline? And people will know you also have a a background in being a judge. There is some concern about the the timeline as well as the cost. Is this something that will take a long time, do you think? Or or is there a way of knowing that? Well, it it should have been done by now, but I think some other issues have intervened and those are political. And I think that you no, know, I mean, sorry, I mean story. the judicial review itself. Oh, oh no, it's a, it shouldn't take that long at all because you don't have to go get a trial date. It's a, a, a single Supreme Court judge uh, will be appointed, and that judge will receive evidence from both sides, and uh, he or she will decide whether or not there are proper grounds to overturn the decision made by the uh, provincial government. Keep in mind, it's a very high standard of proof. You can't willy-nilly start interfering with decisions made by provincial government uh, officers, and that's what Mike Farnworth did here. So they're going to have an onus on them to show that he was incorrect and his decision was without jurisdiction and uh, was, uh, or, uh, was just wrong compared to the evidence. It's not a fair decision. So uh, it's an uphill struggle for them, but I'm sure – Surrey must have thought about that before they filed the petition. Right. And now the the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, has come out saying, well, on Monday, legislation is coming that is going to clarify things, that it won't be a surprise to the city of Surrey. It's going to clarify things as well as clarify things for any other city or municipality that might want to go this route in the, in the future. Do you think that, I mean, one of the big questions today to Peter German was, would this be retroactive? And, and there doesn't seem to have been a clear answer at this point. But is this going to be solved through legislation? Well, I think if you had legislation, it would give the Solicitor General clear and concise power to do these things. Right now, the Police Act says a city has the right to choose the model of policing it wants. Okay, but that only goes so far. The Solicitor General has the overall power and authority to decide whether a particular policing model fits not only with that city, but what about the plan, the overall plan of the province? The province is moving towards regional policing. And would a Surrey detachment of the RCMP uh, support that concept? So those are things that the Solicitor General has a larger responsibility than the uh, 
than the city of Surrey. So that's a factor that needs to be considered. But the, the act gives the Solicitor General a wide degree of power to decide these issues, and he decides them on a province-wide basis. But he has to take into consideration what the city wants. And here, he has been quite clear and unequivocal that Surrey, with the RCMP, they're 1,500 officers short in the province, doesn't have enough officers to safely and adequately police Surrey. So that's what he based his decision on. So the petitioners, the city will have to show that he was incorrect and that he was wrong when he made that decision. It wasn't a fair decision, and uh, we have to go back to the RCMP. That's the onus that Surrey has in a courtroom uh, if they're going to succeed. Right. And so at this point, uh, I, I'm, you, you just said, too, that, that, that a bit surprised that the city of Surrey is taking, uh, taking this route. It's uh, unclear at this point how much it's going to cost, but it is going to be a big cost to, to taxpayers in Surrey. Is this the final step, do you think, as far as challenging the Solicitor General's decision? Uh, yes. Well, judicial review is a final step, but it's, the remedy is granted, in, and usually in rare circumstances, but Obviously, if they didn't agree with the decision given by the Supreme Court judge who hears the uh, petition for judicial review, they could always go to the Court of Appeal. They could always go to the Supreme Court of Canada. But there has to be a basis for doing that. Appellate courts, uh, Supreme Court of Canada, don't hear cases unless there's a substantial reason for hearing them. Right. And, and like you said, too, this this takes it out of a political realm. And because even looking at the numbers and the numbers are different depending on who you ask, it is a very political issue. So is that at least a good thing that it takes it out of the political realm and, and it's somebody looking at it from from that point of view? I, I think so. I think an independent person looking at it has to decide what's in the best interest of not only Surrey, but what's in the best interest of the province? Surrey is, an, is not an isolated island. Uh, you know, whatever takes place there impacts other jurisdictions and impacts the whole of the province. And so the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, has to think of what's in the public interest, not only for Surrey, but for the whole of the province. So he's got a larger responsibility. And that's one thing I'm sure the judge who hears a judicial review uh, will be cognizant about. And and like you said, the, the timeline, this can be done because things in courts can tend to, to drag on for quite some time, but this could be done in a, a speedy kind of way? Uh, I, I would think so. It'll be a summary procedure. And, uh, you know, the, the arguments could be filed. No witnesses are hurt. And a judge would hear it, hear arguments on both sides, and judge would make the decision. I would suggest it probably could be done within a month. Hmm. So, so it won't take long. All right. Well, Wally Opal, once again, thank you so much for joining the show and for uh, talking more about this today. Okay. okay. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.